Today we finish out our summer-long look at the parables of Jesus, and so um, I'm sad to finish it because I've been having a really good time. Hope you have as well. Really enjoyed it. We've been calling this series Storyteller because Jesus was a storyteller. As you look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll hear uh, numerous times Jesus going about telling stories that really conveyed spiritual truth. We've been saying all along that his parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They're, they're stories about things that really uh, relate with his people in the day um, on earth. Things like fields and vineyards and sheep and kings and barns, and they could relate with them. And then as stories do, they stick and they're memorizable and so that they could then be uh, repeated. And ultimately, our lives are part of uh, a grand story that this loving God came to earth as a man to rescue us uh, from the grip of sin and death and then bring us, his sons and daughters, into his glorious kingdom, into eternity. And so stories and, and storytelling should be something that we as Christians really embrace, love, and, and engage in and really work at. Uh, because, you know, historically speaking, they've been a, just this very, very effective tool in communicating the truths of God. And today, in Luke chapter 12 here, Jesus will tell a story, and what he's doing is he's covering your favorite subject to talk about in church, money, 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 money. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And don't worry, this sermon is not the launch of a capital campaign, so I'm not going to end it with pulling out my thermometer, you know, and having us start to raise funds. Uh, I've seen God provide for our young church family so many times in some really amazing ways. And this week has not been the exception to that. I mean, absolutely blew us out of the water uh, with the way that he provided for our church this week. More of that at our annual uh, family meeting. But I just have no doubt that God is taking care of our church financially. So this is not the launch of a capital campaign. So don't hunker down or walk out while you're pretending like you're going to the restroom. We're here. And uh, I think it's going to be really, <laughs> it's going to be really, really good. And so uh, this isn't about the church needing your money. This isn't about God needing your money. This is about displaying a heart of righteousness with your money so that we can be freed up to worship God and not worship our money and worship our stuff. So here in Luke chapter 12, I want to start by getting a little bit of of context. Our last parable for the summer, um, I, I want to give us a little bit of context. And I'll start by asking you this. Have you ever seen, you ever seen money divide a family? And if you have, I'm sorry, that's, it's a terrible thing. Uh, maybe it's a piece of property or it's uh, a deceased parent's home and the family begins to bicker and fight over what to do with that. Or maybe it's uh, somebody was designated to receive something in the will and, and families start to fight and bicker over, no, that was intended for me. What happened? And, and people get upset. Or maybe it's a family heirloom that somebody gets and you think, no, that was for me and, and there's fighting and it's crazy, but money can divide uh, really some of the closest relationships on the planet, and that is our family. And that's where we start out here today in, in Luke chapter 12. So look with me at, at verse 13. Luke chapter 12 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, or to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So there we are, right out of the gate, family divided over money. Now, what I want to show you as we paint the context a little bit here, is I want you to see the timing of this question. I mean, and this is just strange, strange timing. So look ahead uh, at the context, and, and let's just look at what, what's been being talked about here by Jesus. Jesus had just finished saying in verses 4 and 5, Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who, after 
has killed has authority to cast it into hell. Verse 9, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Well, those are some pretty harsh words from Jesus. I mean, that's, that's heavy stuff. But then in the middle of all of this heavy teaching, this dope raises up his hand and, and he asks Jesus about his family inheritance. No, he didn't even ask, did he? He, he demands, he says, teacher, tell my brother, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Imagine this, you've you got one chance to speak to Jesus and you raise your hand in the middle of all this heavy stuff and you start talking, demanding money from Jesus. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, you probably heard it before that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not that money is evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, and I've heard many people say something like, you know, I would believe in God if he would just give me a sign. Or I would believe in God if I could just, if I could just see him. And I'd say, not necessarily so. I mean, here we have a guy among many in scriptures who has Jesus right in front of him. He's got Jesus right in front of him, but he can only concern himself with the cares of the world and not with the Lord. I mean, Jesus is speaking about eternity, and this cat starts talking about his bank account with, with Jesus. And I, I imagine that that would be some of us today, that we're too blinded by finances, we're too blinded by our possessions and our career ambitions and building a retirement fund, that we're, you know, we're too busy chasing the American dream to give too much concern with Jesus. Uh, a pastor named Mark Driscoll says that the American dream is God's nightmare. We pursue things to the extent that we're distracted from what's really, really important. And so let's, let's press in a little more into this distraction. Uh, notice what Jesus does after this guy commands him, tell my brother to do this with the inheritance. Jesus says, more or less says, no. No, I'm not going to entertain myself with your selfish, evil-hearted ambition. Look at verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator? over you. I'm not demanding your brother to do anything. What I will do, however, is I will address your heart. And he starts to address this guy's heart. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, he says to who? What's the word? To them. He says to them. And so now he's speaking not just to this guy specifically, but he takes this teachable moment and he speaks to all of the crowd. He speaks to us too, because we're all kind of guilty here. And he says to them and to us, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here's what Jesus is going to do as we keep pressing into the scripture today. He's going to address the haves, and he's going to address the have-nots. And in North America, where we find ourselves today, we fall in really both of these perspectives. We are both the haves, and we are the the have-nots. There will always be people who are wealthier than us, and so we feel like we're the have-nots, but we are always going to be wealthier than somebody else, and we become the haves, whether you realize it or not. And Jesus addresses both uh, today. Let's start with uh, the have-nots and see how he addresses them. Those of us who can look at other people and say, I don't have that, they have more than me. What does Jesus say to us when we find ourselves on that side? Is the have-nots. He says, I want you to be very careful. I want you to be on guard against covetousness. 
And covetousness is when you're yearning for something that's not yours. And we could all say that we've done that uh, frequently. Today, we call that advertising, right? That's, that's covetousness. The goal is to put in front of you something to make you want what you do not have so that you will then go out and, and spend money on it. And unless you go deep, deep into the woods, you can't avoid it. It's in front of you every single day. So you open up your computer, pop-up ads. You open up your cell phone and the apps, and there's ads uh, lining the walls of Forest Hills and the train stations. Ad after ad after ad. This summer, I, I was blown away. I've seen more blimps floating around Boston than I feel like I've ever seen in my entire life. I also noticed for the first time this summer in Boston, the new thing is airplanes pulling banner ads. I thought that only happened at the beach down in Florida. It's happening up here as well. There's airplanes with banner ads. You go on the buses, there's, there's ads. Uh, your placemat at the diner. I mean, you thought you just went to kind of a diner where older people hang out, not these hip people on the trains where they're looking for... No, you go to the diner on the placemat, there's, there's ads. And then here's where it crosses the line. Stand-up urinal, two inches from your face, there's ads. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. The goal is to get you to covet. The goal is to get you to want something, to yearn for something that you do not have so that you will then go out and and spend money on it. And Jesus says, take care. Be on guard so that you are not consumed with, with covetousness. And why does he do that? He does it because he wants you to have joy. He wants you to have true joy because he knows that the trappings of a life of, of covetousness he knows that it's this downward spiral of chasing after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing i remember when i first got my uh, my very first apple product you remember that i think everybody has something apple or at least they have the sticker on the back of the car so they can look cool and i got my first apple product and uh man ipod photo right the iPod photo. I got it for my, my uh, birthday, and they just marketed it as, you know, this innovative, revolutionary, life-changing, history-making iPod photo. And I get it, and I think, I am up to date. I am, I am with it. And then it seemed like a month later, the innovative, revolutionary, life-changing, history-making iPod video. And I thought, what? Are you kidding me? I just got the iPod photo. It's this trap of just chasing after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I I remember reading an article and I totally resonate with it. It was uh, something along the lines, I think the title was called The the Great Apple Frustration or something like that. It just kind of talked about how uh, many Apple uh, consumers uh, are now moving beyond the wow factor. You know, they really pride themselves and their their products are magical. You get the the iPad and you thought, wow, this thing can blast me into outer space. It's incredible. And we, we, we always thought these things are magical and, 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 and amazing. And people are moving beyond the wow factor to just frustration because they just can't keep up any longer because there's just new release after new release after new release. And what seems like it was going to be every few years is now uh, every six months there's something new being released and you've got to have it or you're behind. And it's just a, it's just a trap. It's just a, a trap to get into that. And here's the thing. The Christian faith is about freedom. God is about freedom. The truth, the gospel will set you free. And he wants you to be free and completely satisfied in him. And not chasing the things of the world to be satisfied. That's why my life verse, Psalm 
37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I feel like I'm the most happy, blessed guy on the planet. Not because I have a ton of stuff, because my delight is in the Lord. And he is all satisfying. Jesus will go on to say, 15, he says, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So he's saying this. He's saying, an abundance of stuff, an abundance of of money, the next great thing, it's not going to buy you life. What does he say? John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the, the life. And so life does not consist in the abundance of your stuff. And so he commands us, take care, take care, be very careful against covetousness. What's the 10th commandment? You know what? God made a list, and the 10th commandment is you shall not covet. Shall not covet your neighbor's house? Makes a lot of sense. When your neighbor's house goes on the market and they have an open house, who's the first people who show up? Not people interested in buying it. It's the neighbors, right? We're going to go and covet that house a little bit. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's servants or his employees, his business. You shall not cover his ox or his donkey. Martin Luther uh, says this. He says, really, ultimately, the, the Ten Commandments come down to commandment number one and two. Commandment number one is, is you shall have no gods before me. Commandment number two is shall not have idols. And so the Ten Commandments really come down to that. Number one, worship God alone. Number two, don't worship an idol. Your wealth, your stuff, your idols. Don't, don't worship that. Tim Keller, who's a, a pastor in New York City, uh, says it this way. He says there's, there's two kinds of idols. Uh, first of all, there's your, what he would call surface idols. And then he would say there are deep idols. And so your surface idol is your car. You really want to have this kind of car that would, uh, you know, get heads to turn and people could say, wow, and you could warm up your backside and, you know, I don't toast your bread on the way to work on the other seat. And, and he, he would call that a surface idol. And then he says, that's really indicative of what's your deep idol. And your deep idol is status. That you want to have this certain kind of car so that people can see you and your status and your importance. Or, or a surface idol might be something like, having a, a comfortably large bank account, but the deep idol is security. That you just want to have security. That, that your security is not in the Lord, but it's in, am I going to be able to pay the bills if something goes wrong? Surface idol and, and deep idol, and God says you shall have no idols. You shall not bow down to any idol, whether an ancient golden calf, or your car, or your career, or the way you dress, or a person, whatever our contemporary versions of idols are, by coveting what you do not have, you make that thing that you want an an idol. And by breaking any of number two through ten commandments, you're making an idol of something that's not intended to be worshipped, and that will not be all satisfying. So let's think through the, the commandments a little bit. You don't Sabbath, you don't rest as is commanded, it's because you made an idol of your work. I gotta, gotta, gotta do this. Chase, 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 chase. You murder. It's because you made an idol of revenge. You commit adultery. It's because you made an idol of sex. You covet. It's because you made an idol of stuff and, and of money. And Jesus says, take care. Be on guard. Not because I'm a killjoy, but because I want you to have joy. And that will not lead to joy. It's just this downward spiral of chasing, 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 chasing and unfulfillment, and he wants you to be satisfied in him.
so Jesus starts by addressing the have-nots. Don't covet. Don't covet. It'll kill your joy. I'm the only one who's satisfying. Now he addresses the, the haves, those of us who have more than other people. Look again at the parable that he gives, and let's read it one more time, 16 through 20. And he told them, all of them, not just the guy, all of them, all of us, the parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he, the rich man, thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have made ample goods laid up for, or you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so here's, here's the parable. Let's recap a little bit. Rich man has some land, and his land produces plentifully. His business is, is agriculture, and he's doing really well for himself, so much so that he's filled up his barns, plural, this would be the equivalent of you and I filling up our bank accounts. That'd be great, right? Filling up your, your bank accounts. And let me just stop here for a moment to just clarify a little bit. Is there anything wrong with being wealthy? No. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Having crops in the barn, money in the bank, having a successful business, having a nice house. No. We can look in the Bible and there are countless examples of people who are wealthy and faithful to God. You can think about Boaz. He provided for all of his employees. He was a great boss. And he provided for uh, Ruth and for Naomi. He's a great, wealthy man of God. We can think about Lydia, who was a seller of purple goods. So she made a lot of money in that day and age. And she, with her big old house, hosted the launch of the church at Philippi. So you can be wealthy and faithful. You can also be poor and faithful. So don't believe that crap out there that tells you the prosperity gospel that tells you that if you're following Jesus, you're going to be rich. That's garbage. And it's saturating Boston more and more. It's saturating television more and more. You can be faithful and poor. You know who is faithful and poor? Jesus. So if following the Lord means you're going to be wealthy, then I guess Jesus wasn't right with himself, with God. If following the Lord means you're going to be healthy, I guess Jesus wasn't right because he died. You can also think about the widow, for example, who was at the treasury and she's dropping a couple copper coins in the, the receptacles, the trumpets as they called them. Ding, ding, just a couple coins. Nobody cared except Jesus who was sitting on the steps right there. He stands up and says, get over here, everybody get over here. He calls his disciples, this woman right here. Gave all that she had, and he honors that woman. So you can be wealthy and faithful, and you can be poor and faithful. Wealth or lack of wealth is never used in the Bible to prove faithfulness. It's not. Well, show me in the Bible where wealth or lack of wealth proves that you're faithful. It's always about what you do with whatever it is that you have. And then with what you do with whatever it is that you have, it's not about the price, it's about the percentage. So it's not about how much they dropped in the basket at church, it's about the percentage relative to what they make themselves. The widow made hardly anything, but she gave everything that she has. Compared to the rich people in the, in the temple there who were giving lots and lots and lots of money. 
but relative to what they had, it wasn't very much. And so, is it wrong to be wealthy? No. Is it a sin to be wealthy? No. Don't be the Christian who looks at wealthy people and says, man, they worship their wealth. Not necessarily. Be careful, though. The parable continues. The rich man fills up his barns. That would be the equivalent of he's full. He's got all that he needs. He's taken care of. He had so much left over, though, that he had nowhere to put it. And so he thinks to himself. He speaks to his soul. And he says, huh, what am I going to do with all of my extra money? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger barns, and then I'll fill those up, and then I'll take an early retirement, and I'll relax, and I'll party. Won't that be great? This is the only passage in the Bible that I'm aware of that talks about retirement. And it doesn't talk very positively about retirement. God wants us to spend our time on earth working, producing for the kingdom. Listen, if we all grow old and move to Florida, who's going to disciple the next generation? Who's going to do it? There's a a tremendous deficit of what I call Titus II ministry in churches across America. You read Titus II, you hear about older women training younger women and older men training younger men. What we find in churches today is segregation. I'm not talking color of your skin. I'm talking age segregation. So you've got a youth group, then you have a college group, and then you have a young singles group, and then you have a 30-something group, and you have a married with kids group. You don't have older people and younger, younger people hanging out together. And a lot of times the older people say, well, I don't have, they don't have any need for me. I'll move to Florida because I don't have a ministry here anyhow. We need Titus to ministry. Older women training younger women, and older men training younger men, rather than hopping in your gold Buick and driving down to Florida to play bingo beachside in your retirement community. We've got to work long and hard as we can. Listen to John's description of the end. I love this. Revelation chapter 14. Listen to this. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. 11 through 13. Catch this. It says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. But for Christians, here is a call For the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. John says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may have rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Do you get that? Eternity with Jesus for Christians is rest forever and ever, and ever, eternal rest with him. But for those without Jesus, what does it say about their eternity? They have no rest. So as long as we have breath, let's work, because we have eternal rest. But for those who are without Christ and aren't working to build the kingdom, they suffer eternal what? Eternal unrest. And so it's the only passage I can find in the scripture, Luke 12 here, it seems to touch on retirement. It's not very good. Go ahead and retire from work. That's fine. But don't ever think you're going to retire from ministry and being deeply plugged in. If you have more time on your hands, you can plug into the ministry of the Lord, kingdom building. This guy, Luke 12, he's one of the halves. His, his needs are met. 
His bills are paid. His bank account, his retirement account, overflowing. The guy is loaded. And what does he do with it all? He builds bigger barns so that he can hold on to it, so that he can hoard it. And what does Jesus say about this? Verse 20. He says, you fool. And then what does he do with the guy in the story? And this is not a true story. This is a story that he's making to prove a point. What does he do with the guy in the story that he's crafted here? He kills him. He says, you fool. Tonight, you die. And when you stand before the Lord, and I ask, what have you done with the resources that I've given you? What are you going to say? Look at my house. Look at my stuff. I had a great car while I lived there. Or look at my photo album of all the great places I traveled. And then you realize, okay, that probably wasn't exactly what you had in mind. This guy's one of the haves, but I want you to know this. Every single one of us in this room, we are the haves as well. We're the haves. It's easy to say, man, those stinking rich people. Listen, I am one of those stinking rich people. You are one of those stinking rich people. When you pan out globally and look at a map, we are filthy rich compared to the rest of the world. Let me show you a picture. I took this picture a few years back in rural Honduras. This little family, I just got this image. I I went there and I prayed with them in this rural little village. And all of them lived in this this house together, the six of them. It was the size of... uh, at our previous house in Central Massachusetts. It was the size of our walk-in closet. And they had one big mattress and they all crammed in the thing together. Walls made out of mud and sticks on the left there. And tarps and sheets on the right there. We are the haves. Because that is millions and millions of people across the world. And so let's be careful to say, yeah, those rich people. Because they're looking at us saying, you're rich. Let me give you some statistics about the sizes of homes in America. Check this out. 1950, the average house size was 1,000 square feet in America. 1970, the average house size, 1,500 square feet in America. The year 2000, the average home size, 2,000 square feet. I know we live in Boston, but the average across our, our country. The point We are the haves. We're the haves. And now, those statistics are pretty crazy, especially considering that the average family size is down by 25% in the past 30 years. But over the past 30 years, the average house size has grown by 50%. So exponentially do we think we need more than we actually have historically needed. You know what our bigger barns are today? Our bigger barns are refrigerators to put our extra food so that we can hold on to it for a long time. It's our cabinet space. We moved into Boston from our home that we had built in central Massachusetts. We said, man, we don't have any cabinet space. We really want cabinet space so we can hold all the extra food in our, in our mansions. Or we get storage units made out of block and corrugated steel. The size of homes in other countries that are made out of block and corrugated steel. Our storage units are the same size as their homes. Our monthly cell phone bills, smartphone bills could pay most mortgages in other, other countries. 
The point, we are the haves. Does that mean go cancel your, your cell phone bill? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. The question is what are we doing with our wealth? Not wrong to be wealthy. We're wealthy. What are we doing with our wealth? Are we spending it all selfishly? Notice, look, look in the text here. Notice the personal pronouns from the rich fool. I'm just, I, I went through and counted them. There's me, I, 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 my. Do we exist for me, I, 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 my? Or do we exist for him and for his purposes? And he calls us, God calls us, to love our neighbor as our self. I mean, that's, I think that's probably the most broken commandment in the Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's one of those, uh, you know, sins of omission. We like to look at the sins of commission. What did you do? Did you get drunk? Did you smoke weed? Did you have premarital sex? I mean, we, we like to look at those sins. What about the sins of omission, the, the ones that most Christians are guilty of, the things that we omit to do, that he calls us to do, like love your neighbor as yourself. We're trying really hard as a church to be a good neighbor and to love people as ourself. But I tell you what, I'm convicted on this one all the time. If I loved my neighbor as much as I love myself, can, can you even fathom what that would look like? A friend pointed out to me once, notice when you walk into a room, church building, wherever, school, wherever. He says, what do you do? You figure out where you're going to sit so that you can be most comfortable in the room. You don't look around and say, come on guys, let me find you a very comfortable seat. I'll sit in the back. No. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not me, I, 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 my. Let me give you guys just some, some ideas for what to do with your excess. And I'm not saying go do this specifically, but maybe it'll jog your mind a little bit. Maybe you could set up your home as a ministry headquarters. You got a nice place? Make it a headquarters for ministry to your neighborhood. I have two friends, families we're really close to, that have massive places. And they're some of the most godly people we know. And they said, we're going to use our home as a headquarters for ministry. So people could drive by and say, oh my goodness, they're loaded. I can't believe them. They must not be strong Christians. No, they're very strong Christians. And their home is hosting missionaries, hosting people who are in between apartments because they just can't get together first and last month's rent. Their home is being hospitable all the time. So set up your home that way, perhaps, as a ministry headquarters. Maybe you could organize a neighborhood party and you swallow the bill. The Masaros did that last week. I have to tell you guys that. It's so cool. Say, let's get all our neighbors together. And we'll, we'll, we'll just take care of that. Maybe you could give an anonymous gift to somebody after hearing about a need somebody has. That'll check your motives, right? Anonymous, no credit. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 3? He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand has done. In other words, it's not about trying to get credit. Look what I did. You know, like the celebrity banquets where they're going to go to these big charity events. And then all the cameras are snapping their picture and they're going, look how beautiful I am. Look at my dress that costs about 100 times more than the ticket. I'm so great. This is, be anonymous about it. Give generously to your, your, your local church, wherever that is. Some of you it's here, some of you it's not. Your investment 
has a guaranteed return because Jesus says, I will build my church. That's the kind of stock I want to invest in. And he says, it's, I'm going to turn that around. That's, that's great. When you go out to eat, bring someone else along with you, pay for their meal who doesn't have the privilege of going out to eat. Simple. Becky and I like to call it, call it this, what we call it doubling our time. We try to double our time. If we're going to do something, let's do it with somebody else. So if we're going to go out to eat, can we call somebody, hey, do you want to come out to eat with us? She'll go grocery shopping, which is a nightmare to me. And she'll say, hey, girl, you want to come along? It's amazing. I, that sounds like a little taste of hell to me, to be honest. But <laughs> the mall or something. Let, let's, just, let's go big. Let's go big. Set up an adoption fund. Let's go really big. There are people in our church family who want to adopt children. It's a lot of money. You have excess? I'll set up an adoption fund. I mean, let's be crazy. Because Jesus did crazy things. Buy groceries for a single mother. You can't afford it. When you go grocery shopping, why don't you buy extra groceries so that you can be hospitable and make it a practice of every Tuesday night you're having somebody at your house or every Friday night you're having somebody at your house and you're you're trying to bless them. You're trying to love your neighbor as yourself. Some of you are able to go bigger. Some of you have to go much smaller. But it's not about the price It's not about the dollar sign. It's about the percentage. That you're faithful with whatever God has given you, that you would be generous. And let me just say this. A lot of times we write off old sayings because they're old and they're cliche. But better to give than receive. How true is that? You experience that? It's amazing. It's, It's amazing. In my prayers, I'm frequently asking God, God, I don't know why I was born in this nation and not in Africa. God, I don't understand why I was born in this generation of wealth. And the answer I feel like I just keep coming back to is verse 48. If you want to go way down in the chapter, Luke chapter 12, what does he say? He says, here's your answer, Josh. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. That's why. That's why we are the haves today. Because he's saying, I want you to take what you have and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you not to fill up your barns and build bigger barns so that you can get lazy, but so that you can be about my work. But you give and you give generously under the example of who? Under whose name we bear? Christians, Christ. Because Jesus gave and he gave it all, he died. So as we, as we close today, whether you currently find yourself as a have-not or a have, either way we close today with the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus. We always close with the gospel. It's always about the gospel. Look at verse 21. Last verse. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the rich fool, as Jesus calls him, plans on storing up treasure for himself. We know that he dies. He plans on storing up treasure for himself and becoming rich in the eyes of the world. The other option, you can be rich in the world or you can be rich towards God, as it says here. And here's being rich towards God. That we were all in debt to God. Romans chapter 6.23 will tell us that the wage of sin... What you've earned, that's a wage. The price of sin is what? 
is death. We were indebted to God. But the free gift is eternal life in Jesus. So here's being rich towards God. Being rich towards God is you've had that debt freed. It's been paid by Jesus. And now you are loaded. You are rich. You are blessed in Jesus. And so even the poorest among us today can be rich towards God if you would trust in him. And you have it paid. He paid it all. He paid it all. And I just want to be rich towards God. And then I want to use those blessings that he's given me. Realizing that I've got all that I need in Jesus, I want to use those blessings that he's given me not to build bigger barns, but to follow the example of Jesus who gave it all to me and give generously. That's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's calling us to do, to be a kind of church, a kind of people who are about giving and giving and recognizing we are the haves. And it is our obligation to go into all the world where they have obstacles that are preventing them from hearing about how to be rich towards God. Real obstacles like getting bit by a mosquito and running the, the chance of dying. Real obstacles like AIDS. Real obstacles like I can't read the Bible because I can't even walk to get a Bible because I'm sick because I have no food in my stomach. I have no water. We're rich. We're rich. And let's give generously and kill those obstacles and bless other people, love our neighbor as ourselves so that they ultimately may, may be rich towards God. Now we can continue to recognize we're rich towards God if we have Jesus. We've got all we need. We would guard against covetousness. Be careful because it's all around us. These traps are laid all around us everywhere you turn. Let's be rich towards God and let's be generous like God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your scripture. Lord, thank you how it recalibrates us. Lord, thank you for your storytelling, how it captures our attention and it paints for us a real picture of where we're at in our spiritual condition. And Father, at the end of this series on the parables, we're really, we're really just thankful for where our lives fit in this grand story. That you have rescued us. You were the hero of the story. You were the victim of the story. And that we were trapped. But you saved us, Father. Now we're rich. And Lord, help us to understand our place in the story, historically speaking. We're in America. We're prosperous. May we recognize that to whom much is given, much is required. May we give and serve and love and hold a tight grip on Jesus, but a loose grip on our stuff and our money. Because we don't know if we're going to die today, tomorrow. What I do know, I'm confident of this, is that we're going to stand before you face to face and we're not going to talk about our stuff stuff that burns up. You're not going to care about our car or our house or bank accounts. Help us to see that. And finally, God, I pray for anybody in this room who has not given their life to Jesus and have not recognized their sin and their need for a Savior 
and the graciousness and the goodness of God, the only one able to save us who comes to earth and takes a whipping for us, dies for us, gives generously in that way. May we turn from sin and trust in that substitution for us. May we follow you all the days of our life. I pray that right now, people would claim the scripture, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and they will call out to you. They will become a new creature. And they'll walk with you. And they'll live a life reflecting Jesus to the world. And so in this moment, if that's you, you can pray to God right now. You can call on him and be saved. Christians, in this moment, we can respond to the Lord by confessing our sin of covetousness, our sin of hoarding and building bigger barns. And do what you need to do with the Lord in this moment. And then we'll pray and we'll continue to worship. Father, I give my friends in this room to you. You know where they're at. You know what they're going through. You know their struggles. You know their distractions. Thank you that you meet us right where we're at. Your word does not return void. You're speaking to many of us in very specific ways. And may we respond in very specific ways. May we be the people that you want us to be. Thank you that you were so gracious and so generous. May we follow that example, Lord. Send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.